know, sometimes you need to show teeth to get things done. And obviously, in a physical situation, when you're defending a loved one or you're trying to prevent a crime, or you need to be able to muster that. And I mean aggression. You know, you're going from zero to 100. Welcome to the Man of War with Rafa Kandi. The mission of this podcast is to forge men into warriors, to be transcendent leaders, protectors, and providers. You will strengthen your mindset, increase your self-confidence, and fortify your self-discipline as you become battle-ready to dominate all facets of your life. As always, listen at your own risk. Arise, warrior, my brothers. Welcome back to the Man of War. My name is Rafa Conde, and of course, I am a man that is laser beam focused into transforming you, into forging you into a modern day warrior. Yes, my brother, this is what we are all about in this podcast, the modern day warrior mentality, that warrior mentality that's going to help you get stronger in mind and body and spirit to increase that self-confidence and of course, to help you lead a life of purpose, a life that you can truly embody that warrior spirit from the moment you wake up to the moment you put your head on that pillow. Listen, today's show is very, very special to me. And I'll tell you why. All right, normally I don't get into politics, but I'm going to make an exception here for this podcast. I truly believe that our country is headed in the right direction. And George is one of those guys that has stepped up and has written a book a very powerful book that I think everyone here should get and read and is making a big impact. I mean, he's a best-selling author already. He came to me a few years ago, and just by shaking his hand, I knew right off the bat that this guy was a man of honor, someone that was going out there to tell the truth regardless of what it was, and he has done so in his new book. And as you listen to this podcast, understand that it's not so much what you feel inside, but more about confirming it with your surrounding factors. I'm a big believer that you know you can feel something, but until you confirm it with your surrounding factors, it doesn't really make it truly applicable. So with that said, I'm going to ask you to keep an open mind here. And whether or not you like the president of the United States, that's irrelevant here. I just want you to keep an open mind. Right, What George writes, he writes from the heart and from true experiences. I know this to be true because George is an honorable individual. He is a man that will shake your hand and whatever he says he's going to do, he will do. All right, There's no bullshit factors here with George. And, and I'm proud of him that he went out there and wrote this book regardless of what the media is saying and putting out. And he wants to give a true story, his experiences with our president. So lean back, enjoy the ride here. This is going to be a long-form podcast, uh, well over an hour and a half, and uh, just enjoy it. All right, take it for what it is, and hopefully it'll shed some light on some questions that you may have. All right, my brother, sit back and enjoy the ride. George Sorial, welcome to the Man of War podcast, my brother. It is an absolute honor to have you on, man. Thanks, Rafa. I'm the one that's honored, man. You've, uh, <laughs> I, I've learned a lot from you. Um, you've, you've been a good instructor and friend to me, so uh, it's an honor to be here. Awesome, brother. Awesome. Listen, we're going to have a badass conversation here. What I want you to do 
first and foremost, okay, is introduce yourself for our audience to, to let them know who you are. Sure. I'm George Sorial. I'm the former executive vice president and chief compliance counsel to the Trump organization. I have worked very closely with President Trump in one way or another now for about 17 years. For many reasons, uh, first and foremost, I really wanted to promote this book. I didn't think I could do that while still in the company, but I, I recently resigned from the organization. So I am out now uh, promoting the book. I set up my own company, uh, a consulting company called Sorial Consulting. I'll be doing a wide variety of things. And I'm also going to get involved, Rafa, in some, some philanthropic matters. Um, again, uh, half my family are Christians from uh, the Middle East. And if you know anything about what ISIS has done to these Christian communities over the past four or five years, um, it's terrible. And I cannot stand by and continue to watch it. So with this new career that I'm launching, with these new plans that I have, a big part of it is going to be doing some good philanthropic work uh, to try to defend some people that have really been abused over the past few years. Love it, love it. All right, so what, what I want the, um, our listeners to, to kind of focus on is, you know, typically every man that walks in and, uh, first of all, walks into our headquarters here, um, at the Man of War uh, headquarters, has to be a warrior-minded individual. And for you to hop on this show is because you are a warrior-minded individual. You came in through my doors a few years ago. We've trained a lot of combative-oriented um, strategies, you know, handgun, and uh, we've also trained some hand-to-hand. And since the day I met you, basically you were one of those dudes, man, that you were out there and your priority was to protect yourself and your family. Um, but you have always been a very humbled individual. You've always been accepting of knowledge, um, yet carrying a very high position in the Trump or organization. And uh, I, I love that about you, man. You carry yourself in a way with a very strong, positive demeanor and I said, you know, I reached out to you, George, and I said, man, you know, this book that you wrote, I'm so proud of you, and we got to go out there and let the world know about this book called The Real Deal. And I also want to talk to you a little bit about um, just who you are and, more importantly, your mindset, the time frame that you spent at the Trump organization, your interactions with Trump, uh, because I think there is a lot of... Uh, misconceptions out there and there's a little bit of a, of a lack of knowledge of what the reality is dealing with the president okay so we're going to open that up today sure I mean that that's a uh, you know tell me where you want to start Rafa I mean mm -hmm. the, the, the primary motivation behind me writing the book is you're right there is a misconception about who Donald Trump is as a person uh, probably the best way I could describe him is, you know, from the outset, this is the guy that was very good to me. Okay, this was a guy that mentored me. He cared about me. He cared about my family. Aside probably from my own parents, there are very few people in life that have looked out for me that, like that uh, and done all the good things and supported me. Um, so that's kind of just an I idea about my mindset uh, where I'm coming from when I talk about him, but I sat by and watched him get maligned from day one. Okay, 
you can remember that day when he came down the escalator and he announced that he was running for president. Uh, he made some statements and, you know, perhaps, um, you know, some people were offended by them. But, you know, look, he took a position and he was really doing it in the best interest of this country. But he was maligned, maligned, maligned from day one. And as a person that knows him really well, I would sit every day and watch the news and hear expert after expert, pundit after pundit, make judgments over who he is or why he was doing things. And I felt that, look, these people have it all wrong. So I set out to write a book that would set the record straight. And part of it was for selfish motivations. It's something that I always wanted to do. Uh, I've had thoughts of writing a book, and I've discussed that with the president for years. But there was also a certain part of me, it was almost a patriotic, uh, I felt it was an obligation as a person that knew him uh, to go out there and do this. And I, I actually, one day I was uh, sitting in the Oval Office and we were having a conversation about just the news and things in general. And he said to me, you know, George, these people come in here, they talk to me for half an hour. Uh, they go out, they write books, then they hold themselves out as my biographers. These people don't even know me. So I said, look, Mr. President, why don't you let me write a book? And he, uh, he agreed. And that was kind of the, the, the birth of it. Um, but, you know, just to maybe take a, a few steps back, Rafa, you know, you, you also asked who I am. Um, I realized from a young age that I was different. Okay, that I had a different sort of outlook on life. And I felt a moral obligation. I, I realized that I'd been given, you know, certain, I'd been born with certain God-given talents. And from a very young age, I realized that, you know, I'm on a school bus and someone's getting picked on. I didn't like that. So I wasn't going to sit there like a sheep and let it happen I was the guy that intervened. And sometimes I did these things to my own detriment. Uh, I wasn't a particularly you know, large physical person, but I just had that mentality that I'm not gonna sit here and watch this happen. I don't like it, I don't agree with it, and I'm gonna do something about it. And you know, when you're a child, you're really not aware of why you feel that way. You just kind of do it because you think it's right or it makes you feel good or you feel sorry for a person. But Agreed. Yep. You know, that is a voice that it grew in me. And, you know, I started to do some things to make myself better able physically to manage these things. Mm -hmm. I got a little bit into martial arts. Um, I enjoyed it. Quite frankly, it really wasn't my, you know, everyone has their own different niche. I love it. I respect it. But it kind of wasn't something that I had passion about. And if you're not passionate about something, you really probably shouldn't do it. Um, but I started to realize that I could make an impact in other ways. And that's why I, you know, after kind of a long twisted path, I ended up going into law. And I felt that was a way that I could make a difference. I started out in government. 
Um, I was working for the Essex County Council's office. Uh, I was part of a task force. It was the uh, late 90s, right around the time when Megan's Law, um, right. you know, the uh, reporting for violent sex mm -hmm. offenders. So I was put on a task force uh, in, in Essex County, New Jersey, um, where we worked with local prosecutor's office, the attorney general, and we were focused on continuing the incarceration uh, of violent sex offenders that had maxed out on their prison sentences. We were using civil commitment statutes to throw them into mental hospitals. So, right. you know, it was, it was taxing, um, it, it was rewarding, because I really felt on a daily basis that I was part of a team that was keeping some very dangerous people off the streets. Uh, but again, you know, after a couple of years, um, it was time for me to do something else. Uh, I've kind of always felt like in life, you gotta shake it up every now and again. You gotta have confidence in yourself. You gotta charge into a situation where maybe you don't have the answers. You know, maybe it's unknown but you have to have some degree of confidence, some degree of bravery to say, hey, look, I like this path and I'm going to take it and I'm going to make it work. So, you know, one thing led to another and I ended up getting into corporate law. Uh, I was doing mergers, acquisitions, uh, general corporate deals. And, you know, then I met Trump and I kind of came, um, you know, my, my career went a whole different direction where I really focused on real estate development real real estate development, uh, building hotels, golf courses, uh, which is a rough business. I mean, you don't, things don't get done unless you have, uh, mm -hmm. you know, a warrior mentality. Um, but I still was always involved in philanthropic things. I always felt it was my obligation to help people that were, you know, maybe not as fast as me, maybe not as smart as me, maybe not equipped with judgment. So I still had this very protective feeling that, you know, if I'm in a room, if I'm in a place and something is happening that I don't like, that I think is wrong, I'm going to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And that's really one of the reasons why, you know, I, I came to you. Um, you know, when I left New York, which, you know, in this context, New York, you know, although I always had, you know, my father um, you know, got me into guns at a young age. I think I probably had my first BB gun by the time I was five, six years old. Uh, I did spend a lot of time. The other half of my family is Scottish, my mother's side. I spent a lot of time over there learning how to hunt, learning how to fish. Um, but when I moved to Florida, you know, being able to carry a firearm was something liberating. And you know, I, I initially came to you because I wanted to hone those skills. And again, why do I carry? People ask me all the time, you know, why do I carry a gun? Uh, first and foremost, I carried a gun to protect myself and to protect my family. Of course. But at the same time, I think all men, and it's something that's been forgotten on a societal level. Actually, society pushes you in the other way. But I think all men, we have a goddamn obligation okay, to look out for other people. And if you have the physical ability, the mental ability, I think, and I would argue, that you also have an obligation, a societal obligation, to be on the lookout, and God forbid something bad happens, you know, look, calling 911 is great, 
you, you know the respect I have for law enforcement is tremendous, but in reality, things go down very quickly and there's a false sense of security. If you think that you're going to hit 911 and somebody's going to show up and bail you out of the situation, chances are by the time first responders arrive, damage is done. So in addition to protecting myself, my wife, my children, I felt that because of who I am, I really have an obligation to go out there and I need to be a first responder, okay? I need to have you know, the guts and the fortitude to do something about a situation that may unfold. Yeah. So that was really why I came to you. Which, George, I mean, the bottom line here is this. Uh, men that think like you are very far few between. All right, I'm, I'm constantly saying, and I believe this is a very good number, uh, somewhere about one and a half to two percent of men are out there with that strong mindset. Um, I also believe very wholeheartedly, and, and, and remember, I've over the last decade or 15 years, I have come across thousands and thousands of men. And now going through this interview process for our Men of War Crucible, I have interviewed well over 225 men as of this podcast. And again, I will tell you that that 2% number continues to shine across the board. And the mentality that you have, that you want to be a protector, it's very important. Um, why? Uh, because the reality, when you start looking across the board here and you start walking around the street and being a police officer, I can tell you this with 100% certainty, not even 99%, that law enforcement is going to respond as quick as they can possibly get there. Right. But... That's not fast enough in most cases. Right. So if you are not skilled and you are not prepared, you can realistically lose your life right. because you lack the skills. You maybe shy away from carrying a gun, shy away from carrying a knife, a defensive weapon, shy away from learning hand-to-hand -hand combat. Why? Again, you know, those are questions that you have to ask yourself, but then... I say to you, I am in line with your vision here where men need to step up and be protectors. Right. Men need to be prepared for battle, whether it be mental daily challenges, whether it be physical battles where you have to defend your family, where you have to defend yourself. You got to go out there and you have to be prepared for that. And I think once men start understanding this and realizing that, you know, 911 is great, but they're not going to be there immediately. Um, hopefully, no one ever has to go through that. But the reality is, again, that you got to be prepared. Rafa, the world is a dangerous place. Okay, I wish, it, I, wish I could say it wasn't, but it is, and it's getting worse. Just a quick break in the action here. December 14 and 15, Fort Lauderdale Beach, Florida, in the Ritz-Carlton. We are bringing the house down. Conclave of Warriors 2 is coming up. And I got to tell you, we have a powerhouse of guest speakers. Listen, if you did not attend last year, you missed an amazing event, an amazing collection of warrior-minded individuals. A tremendous amount of networking went on. And I got to tell you, it was just unreal. 
And this year, we're going to continue that trend. Let's put it this way. We're going to have our main stage presentations, our VIP meet and greet, our inner sanctum luncheon. We're going to have separate groups, breakout sessions, PT on the beach. (laughs) We can go on and on here. You cannot afford to miss this. This is a life-changing, transformational event for entrepreneurs, CEOs, warrior-minded individuals, business owners, you name it. Because I got to tell you, the caliber of speaker that's going to be on the stage here and sharing and spending time with you and connecting with you on a one-to-one level, it's just, you can't get that anywhere else. All right, so go to conclaveofwarriors.com. Get your tickets right now because I got to tell you, we have a limited amount of seats. We've already sold out about 20% and we haven't even started marketing as of yet. Go to conclaveofwarriors.com and get your pre-sale tickets right now. Get them while they last. I'm telling you, we have a limited amount of seats and they're going to sell out 100% over the next coming weeks. All right, guys, I hope to see you there. So I, I think more so than ever, again, although society is pushing men in a completely different direction, and look, I, I think we can include women. I, I think women can be warriors as well. Uh, but that attitude of taking care of yourself, it's almost kind of a dying concept. Um, you know, they want to push you in a direction where you're relying on someone else, whether it's law enforcement. You know, I, I, I reject that. Um, you know, I may not be successful, but, you know, God damn it, I'm going to go down swinging. <laughs> yeah, fuck I mean, yeah. that, that's, you know, I'm going to go down yeah. swinging and, uh, you know, I'm going to have something to say about it. And, and again, you know, you know, who the hell knows what's going to happen, but... Um, now, was this something that you have maybe instilled through years of experience, years of, of challenges in your life, or, or was it something that, you know, you just came to realize a few years ago? No, I, I, I again, I, I realized that at a, at a young age, and I, I, I think I probably got it from the other men in my life, like my father and my, my uncles, who were all extremely strong i mean you know look what my father did my father um, left his country because of discrimination against christians at the time in egypt and went abroad and studied hard and became a surgeon and you know took his wife and you know me young child again across the ocean to new york to make a better life for us that's a warrior mentality uh, if I ever saw one, and he was also a very protective spiritual guy who went out of his way to look out for people, to help people, to mentor people. Again, and it may not be, you know, wasn't always in, in a physical way, but he had that, you know, again, what I would call a warrior mentality where he didn't just accept how things were in the world and he set out to make things better for him, his family, and all the people around, the, around him and he defended us. So, I mean, I, I, I think I got it from, from, you know, from my family, but no, it's something that I, uh, I realized at a very young age um, that I was different and I also realized at a very young age, you know, let's talk about aggression, Rafa. Um, anyone who's seen me when I'm angry will understand 
that I have an extreme level of aggression. And it took me a long time to harness that. Um, but, you know, people will tell you that aggression is good and I, I don't, I don't, I, aggression is not good. And, you know, I completely disagree with it. I, I think you need to be able to muster extreme aggression. And I don't mean getting a little angry. I mean going from zero to complete all-out fucking savage. I'm okay? with you. And I've used that. And again, it's not just in physical, con in physical context. Uh, you know, I used it my entire career whether it was in a courtroom or a hearing room or a boardroom, you know, sometimes you need to show teeth to get things done. And obviously, in a physical situation, when you're defending a loved one or you're trying to prevent the crime, or you need to be able to muster that. And I mean aggression. You know, you're going from zero to 100. You're in I'm going to kill mode because that's what it takes. You know, you are not setting out to, you know, People will say to me, you know, and you correct me if I'm wrong, you're a police officer, but I'm not going to take out my gun for, you know, a willy-nilly reason, but when that thing comes out, I'm going to fucking kill somebody, okay, because that's not, it's not, I take that decision to draw my firearm very seriously, and I go from A to Z. That's the only thing that I can understand. I, th I think when you start to use the gun as a negotiation tool, you get into all kinds of trouble. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, once you have that imminent threat for your life and, or somebody else's life and, and, and that danger escalates, uh, you know, deadly force is, is you, you know, when you draw that firearm, and we've discussed this many times, you know, it is to, you know, take out the opponent, neutralize him so you'll stop or she'll stop attacking. Of course, that is, that is the main objective here. Um, understanding firearms so sticking in the topic here of firearms why do you think the media is so against firearms and 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 they just you know most of the people that i that i listen to on the radio and on television really seem clueless well, I, I think it's a combination of things, and uh, you know, before we started doing this interview, I was just was chatting about, you know, I was in New York, and I have one line in my book, just one line in my book about how there's a lot of haters out there, so I don't leave home without a Glock, which is true, and I can't tell you how so many members of the mainstream media gave me a hard time about that. Oh, why do you feel you need to carry a gun? You think that's a good idea? And I said, you know, look, I think part of the problem is that Americans have basically forgot their basic freedoms, okay? And how lucky we are mm -hmm. to live in a country that trusts us and gives us the right to bear arms. And that's something that, I mean, that's coming right out of the U.S. Constitution. Sure. I mean, that's backbone day one, but... You know, I've traveled all over the world. Um, you know, I've been all over the Middle East, um, Europe, uh, South America, Central America. The majority of people do not have that freedom. They don't have that privilege. So unfortunately, I think that many Americans have forgotten about their freedoms. Right. They don't understand how fortunate they are to have a government that trusts them enough to give them that right. And, you know, I don't know 
you know, look, do people do bad things with guns? Of course they do. Uh, but I, I don't for a second believe that it's the gun's fault. And I, I, I think, um, you know, for lack of a better way to describe it, I think there's a lot of people that are just ignorant. They just don't understand firearms. Um, you know, they're not really thinking things through. Uh, they've become soft because they have too much freedom, if that makes sense to you. You know, the concept of, there's too much freedom that people just don't appreciate anything. I mean, I, I, I watch on TV every day and I'm amazed, not just with firearms, but I'm amazed that people go in public and put down this country. Okay, I was listening to someone, Pete Buttigieg. He was making a point that, you know, America was never really that great. <laughs> you know, how, how do you... How could someone utter those words? I mean, we're the envy of the entire world. Yeah. I mean, people are walking hundreds of miles, you know, in desperation to try to get across our borders. Now, look, that's a whole other issue that we could talk about. But, you know, we are still the beacon on the hill. And I think a lot of people have forgotten that. We've become a soft society. 9-11 um, was a jolt and it was a wake-up call. But you got a whole new generation of kids that they don't even remember that stuff. They don't remember the Soviet Union. They don't remember the stuff that we, you know, that shaped us. And they're coming through life with this softness. Everybody has to accept everything. You know, conflict is bad. I mean, that's something that, you know, I, I, I try to teach my kids. It's part of life. Mm -hmm. And you have to learn how to manage it. And when there's a conflict, you want to be on the side that wins. Being a warrior and having that, you know, mental fortitude to yep. bring up those skills and have them on your fingertips and at your command, I think is vital to succeeding. I mean, it really helped me in the business world, too. Again, we're not all, it's not all talking about, you know, physical hand-to-hand -hand combat stuff. Having a warrior's mentality can really help you get through some difficult times in life. No doubt. Those are those are very powerful words. I mean, I couldn't agree with them more. A and, you know, to add a little bit, maybe fuel to the fire, uh, what bothers me more than anything is the fact that you have individuals speaking about firearms that have zero clue about right. firearms, that realistically... Probably have, never even held one. That's right. Have never even held a firearm, have never even taken a class for s firearm safety. Um, so the, the difference here, though, where, where a lot of that story changes, because I get people walking in through my door often here at, at the dojo um, where we teach, you know, some firearms tactics and is, oh, um, you know, I was in this situation and I wish in that situation a firearm would have been on my person because I believe I could have been able to defend myself. Maybe I could have protected my daughter, my, my, my wife, whatever it is. And I get those people right. um, where initially they were completely no guns, zero guns. They were totally against it. Um, the biggest mentality flaw that I see the media has is they believe that guns by themselves are going to hurt people. Right. You know, and I've never seen a gunfire itself. 
Okay. Usually you need a trigger finger, right? Yeah, that's that finger. exactly right. So yeah, yeah. Our, our, our point here is, is it takes a person to operate that gun to fire and cause the damage. Right. Are there accidents? Of course there's accidents. Listen, there's accidents everywhere, every day, every second of, in this world. We have car accidents. We have all sorts of accidents. That happen. But when you look at it overall, gun accidents are very, very minimal. That's right. And it's like, if only people would take owning a firearm serious, treat it safely, and use it when the when the shit hits the fan, when they need to use it, you know, society would start being a little bit more understanding of why people carry um, firearms like like yourself. And for them to give you a hard time, you know, on your book on a one line, that's bullshit. Man. It is that, bullshit. That is bullshit. And, and you know, if you look at responsible. You know, firearm owners, okay, licensed carry holders. If you look at their involvement in crime, it's almost zero. Right. Um, so, you know, look, it's just another one of these things that, uh, you know, it's really ignorance is the reason behind uh, people just don't get it. Men with guns made this country. Men with guns protect this country. That's just how it is and will always be. Amen to that. No doubt. All right. I want to start diving into your book a little bit. All right. <clears throat> and you mentioned, you know, your inspiration on writing this book. But uh, before we even dive in here, I want to talk about your experience in the Trump administration. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, how you felt there, um, what you learned there how it forged you for who you are today. How long were you there for? I was in the company for almost 13 years, uh, but I've been working with the president in one way or another now for about 17, so long time. Okay, so uh, I want to you know, kind of get a feel for you know, what your learning experience was, um, you know, was directly from President Trump and you know, directly in that administration. Well, I'll tell you a couple of things that really, you know, stuck with me. Um, you know, one of the early experiences I have, I came in as a lawyer and he, he knew that I really wanted to break out and do different things. I really wanted to go into development. I wanted to go into hotel construction. So when he acquired about 1,500 acres of land uh, on the northeast coast of Scotland, literally called me into his office and said, look, I'm putting you in charge of this project. You've got family over there. I've got family over there. You know, I know you don't know anything about this, but you're going to love it. He basically told me, I want you to go over there, study the property, meet the team, anybody that you don't like, get rid of, really immerse yourself in this project and have fun. I mean, those literally those words, have fun. So I went over there, uh, you know, admittedly, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Um, but I said to myself, again, what an opportunity I have. I'll figure this out. I'm a quick study. I'm just going to dive into this thing. And, you know, that's what I did uh, years later. I am an expert now in building golf courses and hotels. Um, but one of the early lessons that I always tell this story, one of the first things I really learned from him was uh, it was at the end of a pretty difficult day on a construction site. 
Um, we had resolved a number of issues and it was just me and him. And, you know, he said, look, people always ask me, how did I succeed in life? And I tell them it's easy. I look around the world. I see what people want and I give it to them. Okay. And it's that context or that concept of, you know, maybe in your world, Rafa, you'd call it situational awareness that has served me well. And, you know, people will always ask me, look, you know, can you give me advice? And one of the first things I tell them is, look, situational awareness. Don't go through life like a dummy. Okay, in the context of, you know, protecting yourself, I think you would agree having some awareness of everything that's going on, you, who's coming towards them, do they have anything in their hands, are they dressed in a strange way, or, you know, it sounds like really simple stuff for people like you and I, but there's a lot of people that just go through world, you know, life blind and they're just, you know, all hell could be breaking loose right next to them and they don't even notice it. Right. So he really taught me that concept of study people, be aware of your surroundings, you know, use your eyes, use all your senses, look at people when they're talking to you, try to read them. You could get so much information that way. So that's one of the big things that I learned from him. Awesome. Okay. And there's probably another one that is equally important, but it's that very basic concept of never quit. Okay. We had early on in my career, I had a series of, you know, you go to court, sometimes things don't go your way. You lose, you go down in, in a hearing. But what I learned from him was you really see how a person is measured when they perform under adversity. As they say, it's easy when it's easy. You know, you know, when things are great, it's easy to be a hero. But when you're faced with adversity, complexity, you've had a tragedy in your life, you're living in failure, whatever that might be, you're trying to recover from an addiction. I mean, we could go on and on with these examples, but how you perform in those situations and having that killer, I'm not going to quit, I may not have the answers, I don't have the solution, but I'm going to fight. And I'll tell you something, one thing about our president, that's a guy that will fight to his last breath. Okay, and that's something, these were themes that were very recurrent in the organization. See what people want, figure out how to give it to them. That's why our products are unique. We don't have the most properties, but the ones we have are excellent and people love them. Never quit, sometimes you gotta fight to get to the harder things in life. And I think the third thing, the third common thing that flowed in the company was you really have to have some passion about what you do in life. Now, sounds simple enough, Rafa, but you know people, I know people, probably most people I know, they plug in, they plug out, they're doing their job from nine to five, they get by Monday morning, I can't wait till Friday. That's not a way to go through life, man. You're just wishing it 80% of it away. You gotta find something that you love, be passionate about it, and do it. You gotta love what you do, or you're never gonna be good at it. So those are kinda, you know, if I had to really kinda break down what's the, the, the culture like with the organization, what's it like working with Trump, those are big ones, and maybe the other, the final piece is trust, okay? I don't consider myself to be the smartest, fastest, sharpest guy out there. I'm probably not. There's always somebody that's a little better. But I think if you were to ask the president, why did I keep this guy around for so long? 
one of the things he would tell you is, I trusted the guy. He knew what I wanted. When you're in our world, okay, and you know, look, I've never, I've never been really in law enforcement. I've never been in the military, but I have been part of a band of people that are fighting, you know, against tremendous adversity. Trusting the guy that you're around, or trusting the person next to you, whether that's, you know, in a trench somewhere or in an office, you got to trust the people that you surround yourself with or you know you're opening up yourself for a lot of trouble so that's kind of those four things passion trust never quitting and having situational awareness seeing the world learning being aware of what's going on that's kind of if i had in a nutshell to describe the trump organization that's how i would describe it that's some good stuff right there no doubt and um definitely one of the things that I see of, of our president here is that he is a fighter. He is, he has that warrior mentality and he will not give up. And in, in the end, uh, it's almost to the point where, you know, people look at him like, oh shit, this guy's a nonstop machine. I admire that. I admire that greatly. Um, you can see it even at his age that he's just uh, one of those guys that, when he sets a goal, he's going to achieve that goal. Right. Um, and that focused mentality, I mean, he's, he's one driven dude, man. He is one driven individual, no doubt. Guy works harder than anybody I know. Um, there's been a lot made out by the mainstream media. I mean, one of the many you know, fake narratives out there is that, oh, this is a lazy guy. He uses executive time, doesn't come down to the Oval Office until 11 o'clock. That is bullshit. That guy is up at the crack of dawn. He's reading newspapers. He's reading everything he can get his hands on. He's thinking. He's on the phone talking to people. I traveled all over the world with him. I mean, you're sitting down having breakfast at 6 a.m. By 6.30, you're going, and your day's not over till 11, 12 o'clock. He is driven, hardworking, loves what he does, and you're right. He never, you know, he sets a goal. His goals are always very high. Um, you know, one of the projects that, that I worked on was building um, a golf and hotel in Aberdeen, uh, Scotland. And his aspiration was, we're going to build the world's greatest golf course. Now think about it, a bunch of Americans coming over to Scotland, the home of golf, we're going to build the world's greatest golf course. But, you know, we did it. And the course has been highly acclaimed. And uh, it's by anybody's standards, whether you like Trump or you don't, it's a top facility, but the point of all this is he sets goals high and doesn't stop until he gets there. And isn't that exactly what you want in the White House? I mean, don't you want a president that has energy, is motivated, loves what he's doing, uh, and will fight till his last breath to protect all of us? That's what you want in the Oval Office. So when you started writing this book, what was, uh, in other words, what was your your reasoning behind i mean did you want to spread his message did you want to share your experiences did you want to kind of tell the american people that look man you know this guy is the real deal because he was getting just you know smashed with the media I mean, what was your intent when you started writing this book it was a combination of all of that, I mean, you know, there were some selfish purposes. I just wanted to write a book. I thought it'd be an interesting, challenging thing. Um, 
But I would say the, the real driving force was what I was kind of talking about before is I, I felt this was a guy that was doing really good things for our country and was maligned and nobody was defending him. And, you know, I remember at one point when I was actually talking to him about, book, he, about the book, he said to me, you know, he was very good about giving us time to do this book. Okay, as we went through the process, you know, when you're writing a book, it wasn't like anything I've ever done. You kind of start out and you throw stuff down on a piece of paper and there's so much and you try to fine tune it. But what you inevitably discover is that there are holes in your stories. Okay, there are little things that are missing. So we had to sit down and do a number of interviews with the president. Now think about it. This is the president of the United States. Uh, but he was very gracious about giving us time. Uh, you know, I've probably been in and out of the White House, you know, eight, nine times uh, to do interviews with him. I met him a bunch of times at Mar-a-Lago and uh, just even out on the golf course. But another thing that I should say for the record is that copy that you have in your hand, Rafa, that's the copy I gave Trump. Okay, there was no editing. There was no nonsense. We actually told them from the beginning, look, if, you're gonna do, if we're going to do this, you got to trust us. Okay, you got to trust that we're going to do the right thing because we're not going to get into that where there's a back and forth. And so literally that copy that you have is the same copy that I gave to Trump, Don, Eric, everybody else in the company. They saw it for the first time when you guys see it. Uh, and, you know, that's a pretty amazing thing. And it does show you the level of trust. I mean, there are people that went out there and, you know, wrote books completely different from mine. But I wanted to set the record straight. Uh, and I also... There was a part of me, you know, although I am an international guy, okay, I was born overseas. I actually have three passports, okay? I became a U.S. citizen um, when I was about nine or ten years old. It was a long process that I went through, so maybe we should talk about immigration at some point. But first and foremost, I consider myself an American, and I felt a certain sense of patriotic obligation to defend our president. Okay, this is our president. Now, when Obama was elected, I didn't like Obama. I wasn't happy that the guy was elected president. But I remember I woke up the next morning and I said to myself, all right, I got to support this guy. Okay, I got to support him. And I hope that he does well. Because if he does well, we all do well. Trump was never given that level of respect. Agreed. Okay, the election night, there were already people calling for his impeachment. He was an illegitimate president. I mean, I remember a couple of days after the election, we were all, you know, kind of summoned back to Trump Tower. Um, it was a really intense time. They were, you know, my office was on the 26th floor of Trump Tower, literally right down the hallway um, from the president's office. And the protests outside were, were insane. Um, I can remember sitting in his office and we were laughing about it, uh, but we could hear people chanting, not my president, not my president. You know, guess what? He is your president. He was elected. Um, but point I'm trying to make is he was really maligned from day one. Nobody even gave him a chance. Nobody even gave him the common courtesy of, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, let's let this guy go out and be Trump. Yep. Um, so I felt as a person that knew him, uh, I had a certain obligation to defend my president. 
so that was a big driving force. And, you know, even I, I, at one point we were chatting over lunch and he made the comment, look, if my friends don't go out and defend me, who's going to do it? So that was certainly a, a big part of it. But I really wanted to get the message that this is a good person. Don't listen to my opinions. Read about my stories because the stories themselves give you life lessons. And I went out of my way to include people of all levels. There's a lot of women who write in the book at all levels, giving their perspective. And again, for the record, my own wife was the president's executive assistant for over three years. She, he treated her so well. And when she launched her own career, to go out and she's an artist. She illustrated a series of children's books and she's a freelance artist. He was supportive of her. And that's another thing. When you see people leave the company, they're still in his good graces. They, he still supports them. To me, that's real leadership because that's not the case. Sometimes you leave an organization and people are petty about it. Um, but those are really the reasons why I, I, I set out to present an alternative view on our 45th president who's really um, you know, a unique person that I think history will reflect very favorably on. I, I firmly believe, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners, I know you feel the same way, but this is a guy uh, that is riding the ship. This is a guy that's saving our country. This is a guy that's creating a country that I want our children to grow up in. All right, there's a chapter here, <clears throat> the Donald Trump that I know. Let's talk a little bit about that chapter. Sure. He's a, you know, blue-collar guy. Blue-collar, not much different from you and I. Um, you know, this is the kind of guy that you go out to dinner. You know, he's not looking for some high-end, you know, he's going to get hamburgers or a steak. He doesn't want a private room. He's a guy that wants to sit right in the middle of everybody, talk to people, get out there, um, go from table to table, interact. He is a regular person. I think Don Jr. once referred to him as a blue-collar guy with a large bank book. And I thought that was a really accurate description. Mm -hmm. And he gave people from all walks of life, you know, race, socioeconomic background, he gave them all equal respect. And, you know, this other misconception that he doesn't listen to people. I mean, I can't tell you how many, you know, let's just pick an easy example. You know, if we were trying to pick the color of a hallway in a building, he would frequently have the samples sitting on his desk. And, you know, there'd be three or four different options. And he would poll every single person that came in the office. You know, whether it was a person, you know, bringing them a cup of coffee to an executive or a lawyer or a maintenance person or a celebrity that was coming in to meet him or a banker, whoever, he would always seek the opinions of everybody. Ultimately, he'd make his own decision, but he would listen to what people had to say. And I think my case was not unique. I mean, I was there for almost 13 years. We've got people that have been working in the companies for decades. Okay, talk to doormen in the building. Talk to security personnel in the building. Talk to the maintenance staff. Talk to the legal department. Talk to the accounting department. 
everyone will tell you the same thing. This was a guy that I knew where I stood with him. This was a guy that showed me respect. This was a guy that allowed me, you know, to thrive and flourish in his own company. This was a guy that treated me like a member of the family. And again, my, my story is not unique. Um, so, you know, that, 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 that's just kind of how the guy he was. I, I would always enjoy bringing people in to meet him for the first time because the reaction, Rafa, was always the same. Wow, this guy's down to earth and he was really easy to talk to. And, you know, he looks you in the eye and people would say the same thing to me. I, I really seems like a good guy. Really, I, I enjoy being with him. Well, those are good words because, look, a lot of people would say, oh, George, you're writing this book because, you know, you worked for him and because he needs more support and blah, 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 all this bullshit. But the reality is that, you know, when you go out there and you speak to people that have worked for him for years from, you know, the doorman, like you said, to, to people that have been integrated in his company for two, three decades, um, honestly, most people that I've ever heard or every person that I've ever heard has been very positive, you know, very, very positive. So yeah. I, I think that is that is important to, to note also. This is not just, you know, a, um, a I got to write this book because uh, Trump needs more supporters. I think this is more about your journey, how you interacted with That's Donald right. Trump, and how, you know, you want to give your story out because in reality... You know, from, from what I'm seeing here in this book, I mean, it's broken down pretty interesting. You know, um, this guy, you know, Trump is a very strong-minded individual that has mental toughness on his side. And uh, with that said, everything that I've ever heard about him has been that he is a blue-collar type of individual. He absolutely is. You know, he is the kind of guy that would, you know, you know, to our military, he walks up 100%. to police officers, shakes the hands. There, there's no... You know, ego involved in that sense. The thing is, what people cannot stand is that sometimes he doesn't have a filter. Right. He speaks his mind and he tells it like it is. Personally, I love that. I love a man that wears, you know, his emotions on his, you know, on his sleeves. Is it the best <laughs> politically political thing to do? Maybe not. But for me, as a warrior-minded individual, knowing that what I have, all right, leading this country, the country that I so love, is a man that will go out there and fight for it to his very last breath, like you're saying, that is very important to me. I mean, I, I think it's really the most important thing. You need a guy in the Oval Office that has your back. You know, I, I don't know, it, it, you know, think about those words, have your back. I mean, there's a lot of people that can do the job, but I want someone that has my back because that's a person that cares. That's a person that's motivated by the right reasons. And I, I think you, you know, the passion that I saw in the business world, I think you're seeing it with what he's doing as the president. And, you know, look, this guy is achieving. I mean, it's one result after the other. And people love him. I mean, Rafa, I was, uh, I was lucky enough, uh, I guess it's now about a, two weeks ago when he uh, announced that he was running again for 2020. I was with him um, in Orlando. And, you know, there's an incredible, I've never seen an elected person, someone running for office, have that level of support. And again, 
it's across all demographics. Okay, there's people from all walks of life of life there. Um, that's something that's unique. Uh, it's 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 a very unique thing. So when he decided to start running for president, talk to me about that. I'm interested in seeing the you know the the mindset, the methodology that happened and you know that was in place. I mean, did he all of a sudden just say one day, well, you know, uh, I'm thinking of running for president. I'm just going to do it. No, I mean it's something that we had been hearing about for years. Probably the first time that I heard about it in a serious way was 2010, 2011. You know, they were gearing up for the 2012 election. And he started talking about it. And there just was so much going on in the business at that time that I think he, you know, that voice in his head was drowned out by the day-to-day reality of what he was dealing with. But the voice in the head didn't go away. And he, you know, like the example I gave you about the paint color, every single person that would come in the office, he would say, look, I want to run for president. What do you think about that? And, you know, I know when it was my time to answer that question, I said to him, if you throw yourself into it and really run like a candidate, I said, I think you'll get elected. Now, my... You know, if I'm being honest, the guy had a really good life and I just didn't think that he was going to get out there and do what a candidate really needs to do, which is five or six appearances every day for months and months and months. That was an unbelievable run, I, m- I might add. It was crazy. And, and that really, it, it surprised us because, you know, as I said, this guy had a really good life. Okay. He was working with his family. You know how rewarding it is. I mean, you have kids. You're lucky that, you know, you have a son that sort of works with you. I, that's my goal is that I have my children one day working with me. But he had a good life. He was doing interesting things. He was living in in interesting places. He had a good base of friends. He had his adult children working with him. I mean, you know, he didn't need this crap. So I would also say to myself, I just don't see him leaving this life. Mm -hmm. But I think that voice in his head, you know, it's kind of like somebody like you that goes into law enforcement, somebody that goes into the military, um, somebody that becomes a priest. Right. Okay, there's a certain calling that you have and you understand and people that have gone into those kind of selfless, you know, you're really out there for other people. It's a rare breed. Sure. I think he had that in his head and he just said, damn it, I got, I got to do this. I got to run for president. I can't sit back and put up with another four years. All right. I mean, now we were in the height of the Obama administration and, you know, look, I, I don't mean to be beaten on the guy, but I thought he was an absolute disaster as a president. Um, I question whether or not he even had the United States' interests you know, in his mind, I mean, look, he certainly had a different view of the United States than what I have, but I just, you know, going all over the world, apologizing for things that had happened in the past, decimating the military. Look at how divided the country came, and you're in law enforcement. You can attest to that. No doubt. Okay, there was just a complete uproar and... You know, again, you could probably talk a lot more from a law enforcement perspective, but look how he undermined, 
you know, the basic concept. I was raised to respect and admire law enforcement, again, from a young age. I think there's a whole generation of, of people that don't, they don't care, okay? And they don't think about when really bad things go down. These are the people that are going to help you, mm -hmm. okay? That whole level of respect was eroded. And I pin a lot of that on the mentality that prevailed during the Obama administration. So I think Trump, you know, he had that calling and he just couldn't not listen to the voice anymore and he had to do it. Uh, he didn't need all this. This was disrupting to his life. It was disrupting to his business. It was disrupting to his family. You know, only a person that's really driven by something special takes that cause on. I've heard that he was, or he is, a, a shrewd businessman. Shrewd as they come. You know, I mean, he is, uh, um, you know, he turns beast mode on when he be, when he's doing business. Like a switch. Talk to me about that. You know, you have to be like that, and that's really, you know, what I was talking about with the whole warrior, you know, mm -hmm. mentality look. I mean, I, 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 it's important that we have to learn to control ourselves, okay? You know, having the ability, you know, to muster up whatever you want to call it, just ultra extreme, you know, do what has to be done. You, you also have to learn how to control it. I mean, it can be, let's be very clear that that sort of conduct uncontrolled can be very, very dangerous. Sure. Um, but, you know, yeah, he was able to turn that thing on uh, like a switch. I think he brings a certain ferocity okay, to politics and the White House that has made a lot of people in Washington really uncomfortable, but I happen to love it. Um, you know, there was no tougher guy in the boardroom, and, you know, he would do whatever needed to be done to win, okay? And again, you know, one of these little gems that he gave me uh, when I was starting out, you know, he said, look, sometimes, you know, whether you're in a negotiation or you're on a construction site, you know, you're fighting with, you know, a contractor. He said, you feel like you you might lose control over something. And he said, that's when you got to get aggressive. Don't be afraid to hit them below the belt. Do whatever you need to do. Make a personal attack on them. You're focused. You know what your goal is. You just threw that other guy off. You turned the tables. And now you're in control of the situation. So... You know, look, there's people that can take issue with that. But again, I believe in winning, okay? And I believe that the world is a very complex, tricky place. And, you know, sometimes you got to be a little bit of a bastard to get the right thing done. I'm with that. You know, you earlier you mentioned, you know, you know, exposing those teeth, right? Getting ferocious, you know, getting animalistic, beast mode. I get it. That's, you know, absolutely. And I think that is a fucking huge element that's missing in our society now, that backbone to be able to to, to deploy these teeth when you have to, right? When you, when you step up and you got to uh, shake someone up. In other words, I think there is an element that is missing in our society that really brings down individuals to a much lower operating level. Right. A level where they can't really see what's going on. They get kind of 
stuck in their rut. We mentioned that earlier, their nine to five rut with zero passion. And all they do is just become haters, right? They hate this. They're on social media hating this, hating that. Why? Because it's a reflection of who they are. That's right. And that's and that's the sad part. Let's talk about him being a father. Of a, you know, I, I think that that's also a misconception. There is also a misconception there. Very good father. And, you know, you want to see that savage side of him, you try to mess with his kids. Um, you know, look, let's take Don, Ivanka, and Eric. There are plenty of other families mm -hmm. where I don't want to, you know, I don't want to mention any names, but when you talk about kids growing up with wealth and privilege, and let's be honest, I think they would admit that they grew up with wealth and privilege. I mean, sure. they were just born into it. That's how it is. Oh. Um, but he was very disciplined with them. He made them work. He taught them good ethics, live a clean life, work hard. You know, it's a humbling thing, Rafa. I always heard that saying, your kids are a reflection of you. And I never really understood it until I had my own kids. And, you know, it's a really true statement that, you know, as a father, don't you feel really great? I mean, I'm now at a point where, all right, I'll take a compliment. People can tell me, oh, you're doing really good. But nothing makes me more proud than when someone says to me, you know, my son who's turning six, he did such a great job in this. Or, you know, he something was going on on the playground and he intervened and you know they call my son now at school a kind of the peacemaker which i'm really proud of uh, but you know you're, you're the, the point i'm trying to make in the context of trump is the kids are a reflection of who you are and sure. these are real solid kids i mean i again i work with all three of them they were not given any special privilege they were made to work like everybody else. I actually think that he was probably harder on them than he was in other people in the company. And look at them. I mean, they, they've got very public profiles. You know, Ivanka's with them in the White House. You know, Don and Eric are, you know, Eric is really very much involved with running the company. Don is involved with running the company, but he's now very much out on the campaign trail. These are good, solid kids like, I mean, I call them kids. That's what we used to call them. They're not kids. Um, but you know, these are very good, solid, adjusted, productive people that are out doing the right thing. And for the record, they're all warriors, um, you know, in, 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 in thinking and their approach to life. And, you know, Don and Eric are also very big supporters of the second amendment. Um, they're good, solid Americans. How are they as a family? Tight family, um, you know, very tightly knit. They stick together. They have each other's backs. Um, you know, they are very, very good people. And they do things that, you know, any family does. They're not that different from us. Uh, they all have, you know, wives and husbands and children. And, you know, look, essentially at the end of the day, they want the same things out of life that we do. They want to be able to work in a safe country you know have a good future for their kids they want to know that they've got a government that's watching their back protecting them looking out for the u.s interest i mean at the end of the day rafa you know the mainstream media would like us to believe that we're all really divided 
you know, black doesn't like white. Um, but I don't think that that's actually the case. I think we're, you know, a lot, are there differences? Of course there are, but I think people are, at the end of the day, are pretty basic and, and want the same things out of life. I'm with you on that. I think that um, for the most part, the media tries to do a good job at uh, making us believe that we're so divided uh, at times where I don't necessarily believe that we are divided um, that radically. I think there is a division and, and, and mindset, but I also believe that there's a huge division between people that are educated and people that are not educated, specifically right. about politics. Um, I find it hard to have a conversation with um, the extreme left at times simply because they don't bring anything of value to the table except hatred and except saying that they don't like Trump. They won't even let you have a conversation, Rafa. Yeah. I mean, these are people that, you know, will shout you down. Anybody that disagrees with them is wrong. Um, you know, one of the, world's, the words that I get hurled at, it's become kind of a war cry now for the left, is you're a Nazi. Right. Okay, yeah. I hear that all the time. People, oh, you support Trump, you're a Nazi. I mean, they don't even know what they're talking I about. No I mean, you know, you have Ocasio-Cortez comparing the immigration detention centers to concentration camps. Guess what? I know people that were in concentration camps. Right. Okay, you know how offensive that is and how misguided it is, but that comes from ignorance. I, I think that she is a perfect example of, it, of ignorance. Right. <clears throat> I think, um, you know, that lady, for the most part, first of all, I don't even know with how she got the position that she got. And um, it's unfortunate, but she is a very strong reflection of what our society is in many areas, especially the left-wing uh, part of the society. Of She is a model, a role model for them. Very, very dangerous, Rafa. <clears throat> we cannot ignore them because they are, they're very confident. They are very arrogant in their you know, positions, and they're dead wrong. They're so far off, they, do, they don't even know what they're talking about, but they, the way they present themselves, they influence you know, the ignorant. Uh, and they're very dangerous, and I think we have to confront them head on. Talk to me about Donald Trump having balls. All right. And, he, <laughs> you know, because I, I go down that road often and I'm like, well, look, this guy kind of kind of rolls to the beat of his own drum and he steps up. All right. And listen, whether you like him or not, you have to admire the fact that he'll go against whatever the you know, whatever the left is bringing that day. And he'll just say it as is. Um, obviously. Look, no one is perfect. You're not going to agree with everything or how he handles everything. We get that. But I must tell you that I admire that fact. He has balls of steel. I mean, look, let, let's just take, there's a hundred examples we could give. But look what he did yesterday. Okay, he was overseas. He's in Japan. And he said, let me just go see, uh, you know, I want to see Kim Jong-un. I want to go to North Korea and meet him. Now, look, that was a risk because Kim Jong-un could have just said, look, I'm not going to meet you. The course, media would have right. a field day with that. Oh, but yeah. I know his thinking, and you know, I've actually spoken to him a little bit about you know, what his approach with North Korea and other you know, international conflicts were. Remember Obama, when he left the White House, told Trump, your biggest threat right now is the Korean Peninsula. 
Okay, that's a time bomb. You got to deal with that. Now, I can remember seeing the experts, the pundits, oh, you cannot just go and meet him. You have to have one year of mm -hmm. preparation for bilateral negotiations, whatever the hell all that means. But what did Trump do? He said, look, I'm just going to go over and sit down. I'm going to meet this guy. And, you know, is the problem resolved? No, it's not. Do we have ways to go? Yeah, we do. But certainly it's been very much diffused. Tremendously. People are I talking. Agree. You know, they're demilitarizing, you know, large parts of that border. Nobody's worried about a nuclear conflict anymore. And that was done by just having the balls to say, look, I don't care what these experts like. At the end of the day, he's a man. I know how to deal with people. I'm going to go sit down and talk to him face to face and try to figure it out. Okay, we're not going to figure it all out in 15 minutes. But I think the world is a much safer place because we have a guy that has balls and is willing to do that. And Amen to that, yes. I mean, there's a million other examples, Rafa. I mean, you know, immigration, these are big problems that he didn't create, okay? Now, as an immigrant, I think I can speak with some authority. Um, you know, I agree that most of these people are probably trying to come over here to make better lives for themselves. I understand that, but we have to have a legal way of doing it. And this is a problem that has persisted for decades, Many administrations have just kicked a can. I'm not going to deal with it. Turn my. He's confronting the issue. He's taking on the issue of trade imbalance with China. China has built an economy for themselves over the past 30 years based on the back of our innovation. They've stolen our intellectual property. Absolutely. Yep. Okay, and there's, again, everybody knew that this was going on. Okay, essentially, China has had tariffs on us for decades. Now, again, I'm not an expert in these matters, but he's going in there and dealing with them and he's hitting them with a stick and he's taking on problems that people ran from and he's taking a lot of crap for it. And, you know, look, we don't know where things are going to end up, but at least there is some change in motion right now and people are talking and the Chinese are making concessions. Now, you know, immigration... That's a whole other issue. I mean, Congress has to step up to the plate and do something about this problem. Shutting yeah. down ICE, like, like AOC advocates, you know, shows you how distorted that side of the aisle is thinking. Okay? Um, I mean, it's gotten to the point, honestly, where you just... Uh, it, it, it's... It, you got to block it out because some of the, the shit that comes out of that other side doesn't even make sense to, to anyone at all. Does it? I don't think it even makes sense to them. They, they don't just, know their they, own message. No, That's right. they don't even understand what kind of message they're, they're disseminating. Right. Um, so uh, it is a difficult time from that perspective in our society right now. There, there's no, no doubt about it. Let's talk a little bit about immigration laws. And, and I hear you loud and clear when people are trying to come to this country, yes, to make it better, to, um, you know, to better themselves, to provide for their families. I get that. But you know, I will tell you that you know, coming from, from a, a Cuban family and, and then migrating to the United States uh, back in the 50s, you know, they did it by law. That's right. You know what I'm saying? They became American citizens and, and, and my, you know, so the question lies here is, why is everybody else so special? You know, I don't, I don't, I don't really know. And, you know, like, like your family, 
you know, my experience was the same way. We did it legally. Uh, I can still remember, you know, I can stand, I can remember standing in courtroom as a child with my parents taking the oath. And I can remember that first U.S. passport that I got and how, sure. how proud all of us were that we had become citizens. And I, I think, you know, that's one thing in the immigrant community. It's hard to find people that are more proud of the United States than people that have immigrated here and they've, you know, they came here for a reason. They left something behind. I mean, these are true American patriots, but, you know, I, I, I don't know. Uh, on a human level, I mean, I think we all saw those photos of the, you know, father and two-year-old daughter that yes. drowned. And, yeah. you know, my heart bleeds for these people. I mean, I've got a two-year-old. I, I, you know, like, like many of us, like I, I view that my, myself. I, you know, I imagine how desperate I would have to be to take my young child out in a river and then, you know, it's, it's a horrible, horrible thing. I want to be very clear about that. However, we have to have an organized legal system for taking immigrants. And I think Trump is a big advocate. Trump never said no immigration. He said we just need to have a system and do it in a legal structured way so that we know who's coming into our country and that is smart i mean we can't just have open borders uh you and find uh, me a country in the world that just lets you show up and, uh, and immigrate right work and, that and not, even, not even that when you start getting these cities these sanctuary cities terrible where they're housing known crim criminals terrible. you know i mean i it's just mind-boggling to me that you know, you you are part of the United States, and yet you want to house criminals, people that you know very well have committed major crimes, but yet you give them that sanctuary there. And we even in in our city that, that I work in, uh, we had issues. We we there were issues where we had we were even asked to back down away from assisting ICE. Let, let, let it be known that they can go fuck themselves. Because right. when an officer, in, in my opinion, um, is out there and uh, um, uh, in need of our assistance, um, uh, there is no one, I don't give a shit who comes over the radio, that's ever going to prevent me or stopping me from giving that assistance to that officer in need. Not going to happen. 100%. And then, you know, that's very admirable uh, you know, th 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 to say that. And I know that a lot of, I've actually heard the same thing from other members of, of the law enforcement community. But, you know, I think the whole concept of Sanctuary City, is, it's, a f it's fucking disgusting. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's unlawful. I mean, one of the backbones of American law is that federal law preempts state and local laws. Mm -hmm. So just this concept of these individual municipalities or cities rebelling against a long I don't think it's acceptable. I think it should be dealt with, you know, in a very, very heavy-handed way. Okay, we cannot have that type of anarchy. And at the end of the day, you're right. I mean, we're protecting criminals. I mean, that, that's essentially what we're doing. We're providing, exactly. and we're doing it, it, it. They're trying to do it under an honorable banner of, oh, it's immigration. Sure. That's nonsense. I mean, you're, you're, you're harboring criminals. I mean, and sure. that, that's just... You know, never acceptable. Uh, very, very sad. Very sad. No doubt about it. And, uh, you know, let it be known here on this podcast right now that for law enforcement agencies, for brothers out there in blue, 
Um, we've seen a, a, a drop-off on these sanctuary cities because I know that our city dropped out of that and said, fuck no, we're not going to do it once the government said, we're not going to grant you any X, Y, Z, any more right. money for this. Um, but let it be known, man, if there is a brother in need, okay, you need to step up, you know, because, um, you know, we are one and the same, and, and, and it's so important that we need to understand that we are a country together when we're out there. Um, when these cities come out here and try to separate themselves and try to do the wrong thing, uh, you're just, you know, disconnecting yourself from reality, you know, and then that's a shame, and, you know, not going to happen in my world. 100%. All right, so let's end this uh, conversation. I want to talk first before we do that. I want to end it in an interesting note because I, I was looking at this chapter here. Um. Conquer the unconquerable. All right. I was skimming through that a little bit earlier and some pretty pretty cool stuff in there. Let's talk about that chapter before we, we finish this off. Yeah, well, I think it's just, again, it goes back to that whole, you know, warrior spirit. And I, I, I think it's just something that people have forgotten about or neglected or even told it was wrong. But, you know, sometimes in life you got to just go for it. Uh, you can't be put by, you, you know, you can't be discouraged by a negative attitude or feelings that, look, I can't get this done or it's too hard or, you know, I'm never going to be able to do that. I, I think you really, people have to go through life with confidence. Uh, people have to embrace, you know, the positive things that are out there. They have to teach themselves to think in that way because really, you know, what I've come to realize, you know, I'm 50 years old, Rafa. So, you know, I, I, I'm not, you know, an old person, but I, I've done some things in my life. And one thing I realized is outcomes are often affected by how you approach a situation. Okay, if you walk into a situation and you got your shoulders down and you're worried and you're probably going to fail. I mean, you're, 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 you're not even giving yourself a chance. Mm -hmm. Okay, but if you come into a situation, you've got a spring in your step. I can do this. I've done it. I practice it. And if I don't do it, I'm going to get up. I'm going to try again. You are going to succeed. And I, I think people often unfortunately you know they forget that and they they lose track they lose confidence in themselves they don't know where their lives are going they go from one spiral to the next and they create their own failure so i think you got to think the other way and you have to create your own success i mean you know trump used to say something another you know kind of trump line was you know you create your own luck so if you're out there and you're positive and you're doing the right things, you're going to find that you're a little bit luckier. You're more successful. So I'm going to read a little paragraph here. Right? It says, he is a master of destabilizing people involved in negotiations, sometimes by raising the stakes so high that he creates panic and chaos. But on the inside, he's calm and laser focused on the objective. It's exactly what... Um, you know, you see it every day. I mean, he sends out a tweet. The whole world goes into an uproar. I know exactly what he's doing. 
He's using that piece of advice that he gave me. Create a little chaos. Throw people off. Whatever it has to be. You insult somebody personally. You say something about a guy's wife. Do whatever you got to do to knock them off the mark. But you're focused on your objective. And you've just turned the tables and created some advantage for yourself. And I see him doing that all the time with the presidency. He'll start off in a very high position and everybody's in a panic. Everybody's, oh, how could he do that? How could he say this? How could he? But I know that he has an end game in mind and he's never going to lose sight of that end game. And look, if things get a little messy during the process, sometimes it has to be that way. That's how it is. Yeah, soon, soon choose art of war, you know, increase the agitation of your opponent and right. make him tremble and confused before That's you attack. Right. 100%. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is uh, uh, no doubt some good stuff right there. George, what do you got going on nowadays? Well, I, uh, I'm still in the process of uh, promoting this book. Uh, I'll be doing that for another few weeks. Uh, I set up my own company, Soreal Consulting. Um, I'm starting to take on clients in different areas. I may do... Uh, you know, I will definitely support the president for 2020. I don't know that I'm formally going to be a part of the campaign, but I'm going to go out of my way to talk to people and do anything I can to get them reelected because I truly believe that this is probably the most important election of my lifetime. Um, we need to keep this man in office. And, you know, I'm going to try to go out and do some, um, you know, philanthropic things, things that, you know, I like protect my community, uh, you know, help Christians in the Middle East, as I mentioned before. So, again, I'm kind of pivoting into the uncharted territory, but I'm doing it with a lot of optimism. And uh, I look forward to good that good things will happen. Awesome. The uh, name of the book is The Real Deal. My Decade Fighting Battles and Winning Wars with Trump. They can get there pretty much anywhere, right? Yeah, anywhere. You can go into any Barnes & Nobles. It's available on Amazon. Um, it's all over the place. That sounds great. Man, this was a very insightful conversation. Thanks, Ralph. I appreciate no, it, man. No doubt, man. And uh, some good stuff. I see that you have a very, very bright future. And Thanks, more man. importantly, man, you know, you keep steady having that drive inside of you, that mindset that you carry, man, that warrior mindset. I love that. All right, brother? Thanks, man. I appreciate it. It was my, uh, my pleasure and my honor. Anytime you ever want to talk again, let me know. All right, guys. And for our listeners, I'm going to put the link uh, for the book on the uh, webpage also and also uh, George's uh, link to his website. All right, George, take it easy, brother. All right. Thanks. You too, Rafa. Now, this was a very powerful conversation, and I hope that you enjoyed it and you were able to take from it, right? Taking some great nuggets of wisdom here, some great messages that came across the board, and hopefully it shed some light on what the reality is out there. All right, guys, I hope that you enjoyed this podcast. Now, check this out. Do me a favor. Go to iTunes and leave us a review, please. So important to continue trending on these iTunes charts. We are trending higher every single month because of your support. But leave us some feedback because I got to tell you, we bring you some quality, quality podcasts. And, uh, you know, based on the emails and the DMs that I receive out there, people are loving it. So go ahead and leave us a, a review. Also, get yourself your pre-sale tickets for December 14 and 15. Make that commitment. Invest in yourself. All right, Fort Lauderdale Beach, Florida. Go to conclaveofwarriors.com. Also, if you're interested in attending our Group 3 Men of War Crucible, 
All right, that's going to be in February 2020. We will be starting to take applications here in the first week of August for that. Go to men of war, plural, M E N, men of war, crucible.com, and put in an application. All right, my brothers, until next time, your life may be challenging and full of dangers, but never retreat. Your last battle may be your greatest victory.